Hello and welcome to the Irish History Show. My name is Cahill Brennan and on today's episode, myself and my co-presenter John Dorney are going to be discussing the 1641 Rebellion in Ireland. I find it a really complicated period in Irish history, so I think a lot of the questions I have are also questions that people listening at home would have as well. If you'd like to listen to this or any previous episodes of the show, you can go to our website, irishhistoryshow.ie. You can follow us on Twitter, at irishhistorypod, or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash the Irish History Show. We're on a lot of different podcast platforms now, like Spotify and iTunes. So one of the things we could ask you please to do is rate and review the show because it really helps us and it bumps us up in the listings as well. So if you could do that, we'd really appreciate it. Hi, John. Just the two of us again now for a change. Yeah, yeah. It's getting uh, it's getting crowded in here in the podcast. Yeah, we were very lucky with the generosity of guests coming in. We had quite a few over the last few weeks, so we were very lucky to have them on. Yeah, and uh, a good a good diversity of people lately as well. Now we're going to go back to the 17th century, and this would be an area where you'd be a lot more familiar with than me, the early modern Irish period. Yeah, well, this is what I studied actually in my final year in college many years ago, but also for my master's, and I was supposed to be doing a PhD once upon a time on the 17th century. So, yeah, it's it's a fascinating period. It explains a lot going forward in Irish history, but it's very different from what we might expect. So it's it appears kind of very confusing and complex at the outset. But I think once you know a bit of it, once you grasp the basics of it, it does help explain a lot of Irish history moving forward from that century. How did the rebellion start in 1641? What was the political situation in Ireland at this time? It is a very complicated situation in a lot of ways. And one of the reasons for that is that there's a complicated and very antagonistic relationship with English politics. And not just the English in Ireland, but English politics in England and in Scotland. And Ireland is kind of destabilized by events there. But those two kingdoms are kind of destabilized by Ireland as well and end up in in civil war as a result. But to go back a little bit to the start of the 17th century, and what you've had is essentially the conquest or what they call the pacification of Ireland by the Elizabethans, by the English under Elizabeth and finishing with James I. And for the first time ever, really, the English crown had solidified its presence over all of Ireland. Their law for the first time ever was dominant in all of Ireland, their language, and most crucially, their religion. So the idea of the Elizabethan conquest was not so much to like exterminate the natives or drive them out of their lands, although that, that happened certainly those who, who resisted, especially in Ulster, but it was more this idea of co-opting them so that they would take English titles and they'd become English noblemen. And the idea was their sons would be educated in England and they'd become English nobles and so on. Now, the reason they were unable to incorporate the Irish upper classes and these are people of Gaelic Irish origin, also what we call Old English or Medieval English origin, is religion. Because while a lot of them are prepared, especially after the English win this war in, in the late 16th, early 17th century, to swear allegiance to the, the monarch of England, very few of them are prepared to swear allegiance to him or her as head of the church, which they're obliged to do. And this basically means that they can't be the upper class of Ireland in the way that's anticipated. They can't hold public office. They can't bear arms for the king. They can still carry arms, but they they can't hold positions in the army. 
And their land titles themselves are constantly under question. Now, there's two kind of categories with this land question. One of them is people who lost their land in the Elizabethan conquest. So their land was seized for resistance to the crown. And this is most common, of course, in Ulster, where you had an alliance of Ulster chiefs under Hugh O'Neill. And actually, they, they retained their land in the initial peace settlement, but then it was seized uh, subsequently after their flight to Europe. So a whole swathe of land in, in Ulster Western Ulster and Central Ulster was confiscated and given to English and Scottish settlers. James I is the first king of Scotland and England. And then the eastern counties of, of Ulster were kind of colonised by freelance colonists, if you like, from England and Scotland. And that's, but this is not only an Ulster thing, it's quite a lot of land in Munster has been confiscated as well, especially from the Desmond dynasty, some in Kildare, some in Leash and Offaly. That's one kind of land question, the losers of Elizabethan conquest. Second category to the land question is the existing Catholic nobles and their land titles get questioned. Why? Because they were granted either way back in the 12th century or under the surrender and regrant of the 16th century. But it's not clear whether these are valid still under the Stuart state in the 17th century. And what happens is in many cases, they have to give up a portion of their land to the crown in order to get a legal title. This is a way of kind of whittling away at the Catholic kind of upper classes and trying to get them to convert to Protestantism as well. And you have a kind of a rapacious class of what's called the New English. Uh, These are settlers who come to Ireland, not all of them of noble origin, which is actually, you know, it's kind of a grievance. You see this all the time from Irish Catholic accounts of the 17th century, that they're the meaner sort, that they're not proper gentlemen. And they're coming into Ireland, they're, they're taking land, they're starting businesses and so on. And their culture and their religion is the dominant one. You know, not in terms of numbers, by no means, but in terms of the dominant position in society. The Catholic upper classes don't want a revolution, but they do want these this sorted out. They want them. They want themselves back at the pinnacle of society, and they try to have a series of petitions to, first of all, James the first, and then his son Charles the first, called the Graces, where they pledge civil loyalty but not religious loyalty, and that their discrimination against them is is removed, in return for taxes. I should add this doesn't really work. They, they get granted kind of limited things, but not everything that they want. So this is simmering away in the background. You also have like large amount of the native population. This is the the ordinary people, if you like, the lower classes who have actually been kicked out of their land in, all over the place, but especially in, in parts of Ulster, uh, parts of the Midlands, parts of Munster. There's this simmering kind of tension between them and, and the, the newcomers. But what really sparks it off is this crisis of the monarchy in England and Scotland. So basically, it's very complicated to our minds because, you know, it's, it's all it's conducted in 17th century religious terms. But basically, Charles I tries to create a kind of centralized state. He tries to rule without a parliament. So he collects taxes and he passes laws without parliament or tries to tries to get around that. And he also tries to impose, you know, his own vision of religion on England and Scotland. And basically, first of all, the Scots revolt against it. Then the English parliament won't vote him money to go and put down the Scots. So he appeals to the Irish Catholics to raise an army for him to go to Scotland. And to the English parliament, this looks like, well, Charles, who they think is a crypto Catholic and so on, is recruiting the Irish to massacre the Protestants. So they start talking about raising their own army to send to Ireland. This in turn tells some of the Catholic nobility, who who again were already kind of uh, anxious and discontented, well, we better get there first. We better overtake over the state in Ireland first before this English parliamentarian force, which doesn't exist yet, but which is supposed to be coming over, arrives. So it's a period of kind of paranoia and fear. 
And what the Catholic nobles think is, we'll seize Dublin Castle, we'll seize power, we'll impose the things that we want, swearing that we're actually loyal to the king and we're against the parliament. And it'll all be over in a week and we get everything that we want. But of course, best laid plans always go awry. And before this rebellion broke out, how did Irish Catholics view the Irish government in Dublin Castle? Well, it's really hard to say, you know, because what you're left with as sources is, you know, the upper classes. Also, what you're left with is, you know, the version that they wanted to put in public. So the version that the Catholic landed classes, who are still about six, own about 60% of the land of Ireland, which is the main source of wealth, say is that they're loyal to the king, but not, not to the king's wicked ministers. So what they kind of view is that the Dublin government has been kind of seized by these kind of Protestant newcomers who they often say are, they call them base mechanical fellows, things like this. They're not proper gentlemen either. So what the upper classes see it as is there's been this kind of usurpation by these nouveau riche, if you like, newcomers from England. In terms of the ordinary people, you know, one of the things is before the war of 1641, the actual government, the state has very limited impact on people's lives. Like the enforcement of law is left up to the local landowner, whoever that may be. Um, so it's increasingly Protestant, but it's still majority Catholics. There's no real taxes on ordinary people, except, you know, there might be taxes placed on, on imports and so on. So it might drive up the price of certain things. But the state plays a fairly limited role. And even the religious side, the Reformation, they tried to impose kind of uniformity. But there's no real way of at the state of forcing people to go to Protestant worship if they don't want to. So the real grievance of the, the ordinary people would not be so much against the central government, but probably more against these settlers who they feel are the wrong religion, they don't speak their language, they're coming taking their lands and stuff. And this must have led to huge tensions in areas, like you've mentioned there, Ulster and the Midlands and parts of Munster, where people who have been farming lands for generations and their families have lived on them for generations have been moved off to make way for the new settlers. And they've often been moved not very far away to worse lands so they're still kind of living cheek by jowl with the settlers and all this resentment boiling away. That's right. And one of the things that you see, we have this great source called the Depositions, which is a board that was set up for compensation for Protestant victims of the rebellion. But it's almost like the sources that we have now for the revolutionary period of the 20th century, like the Bureau of Military History, because you get loads and loads and loads of accounts of people's firsthand experience. Now, one point that, for example, Nicholas Canny has made writing about this is, a lot of these settlers who get attacked in the rebellions knew their attackers. A lot of them record conversations that are in a kind of lingua franca, you know, half in Irish, half in English. You know, so as you said, it's very intimate. They, in most cases, you know, where people have been cleared off land for more productive tenants who pay more rent from, from England and Scotland. Yes, they, they know them. They're living in the hill country nearby and, and they're, they're nursing their grievances, I suspect, before the rebellion. Now, one of the things I find so difficult to understand with this period is why there seems to be such loyalty among Irish Catholics for the English crown and for the Stuarts when they don't seem to have done anything to deserve this type of loyalty. Yeah, I mean, for the Jacobite period, this is certainly kind of an ideological thing. Uh, and it's about, you know, the, the rights of kings and the true king and so on. In the 1640s, you see this for sure, this rhetoric. And some of it goes back to this idea that the Stuarts are actually Gaels, you know, from Scotland. And the Stuarts had some Gaelic ancestry. But there's lots of kind of praise poems from early in the 17th century saying the Stuarts are Gaels, they're not foreigners, they're the rightful high kings of all of Ireland, you know, so that, that's a part of it. But really what you're looking at in the 1640s is, you know, it's a tactical thing. 
So the parliament is really anti-Catholic. The king is not looking to kind of exterminate them, is not looking to get rid of their religion. He just wants, um, it, you know, there's there's negotiations are possible. So it's, it's a combination of things, but it seems to me that it's mostly tactical in the early 1640s. And it becomes something more kind of by virtue of fighting for the king in these wars that follow. But there doesn't seem to be any great push for separatism at this time to remove the English crown and any trace of British power in Ireland. Now, that's a good point, but it's it's interesting. And again, we the thing is, we can only go in the sources that we have, and these are limited to a very limited sector of society. It's the landowning Catholic class, the literate class, and they obviously have a, a specific agenda. So, I mean, a way of thinking about it is, like, for example, Cahill, you've looked at Lord Middleton, who was the head of the Southern Irish Unionists in the 1920s, 1910s. One point you've made talking to me is like, he had his own interests as a, a landowner and a magnate and so on, and um, which weren't really identical to Southern Protestants at all. So, you know, there, there's quite a disconnect there. So it's quite good, I think, to apply that backwards to the Catholic landowners of the 1640s. What we see is their particular interests in, in the written sources. What you see once the rebellion breaks out, though, is there's a real disconnect between them and a lot of the native Irish who have been cleared off land with grievances against these settlers. And what you see, for example, in the rebellion is you see the rebels in Cavan, for example, rip down all the English language signs that they can find and say that there'll be no more English spoken in Ireland. Elsewhere, you find so I find a certain amount of religious zeal as well, like Bibles are burnt because Catholics don't use Bibles. You know, Catholics get instruction from priests. You see a lot of things like, again, this this kind of thing where the kind of dispossessed Gaelic landowners look down on these newcomers and they call them things like churls, uh, which is a word for peasant, you know saying that they should be thrown out of the country and that they're, they're a blight on the country. So I think if we had more kind of extensive sources, we'd see a more kind of popular anti-English and anti-Protestant sentiment. Well, in this period, John, do you see much millenarian feeling with religious fervor, massacres, people being killed, social disconnect? It must have really seemed like it was the, the end of the world. Hard to say. I mean, in the period kind of leading up to the rebellion, it's not so much the end of the world or, the, you know, the millennium or, or a great revolution is just terrible fear, you know, because what you've got is this situation where the English Parliament and the Scottish Parliament are making noises about they're going to come over to Ireland and extirpate, which is the word they use, like exterminate Catholicism from Ireland. So part of the reason that the rebellion is so violent when it comes is this terrible fear, you know, all over Ireland where people are hearing rumours that they're going to be massacred. And they tried to get their massacre in first. I mean, it might have kind of something in common with Rwanda in the 1990s or something like that. Well, when we describe all these different sections of Irish society at this time, Gaelic Irish, Old English, New English, there's also another group that we should talk about, and that's the Scots in Ulster. Now, what was their relationship like to the native Irish population in Ulster? And were they treated anyway differently to the English settlers in Ulster at the time. Do they make any distinction between Scots and English? They do, they do. That's an interesting question as well, because, you know, we think of like Britain, but Britain didn't exist at the time. You have two kingdoms, England and Scotland, and at the time they're joined by the Stuart monarchs. In Ulster, you have actually quite a complicated picture when you talk about Scots, because in the east of the province, in the northeast of the province, you had had substantial settlement from the 14th century by a clan called the McDonald's or McDonald's, depending on how you want to translate it, McDonald, uh, who were from the Hebrides and from Western Scotland. 
and they were you know a mixture of ancestry there were gales and norse actually but you know they were gaelic speakers from the west of scotland and and throughout the 16th century they were referred to as scots but they're gaelic speaking the ones in ireland are a majority catholic there's some protestant ones in scotland uh, of this clan but that's one type of scot because of their religion and because of their language they're kind of on the side of the native irish but they're constantly moving back and forward between ireland and scotland now in terms of the ones who came after the plantation of Ulster in the early 17th century yes they're viewed quite differently I, some of them are Gaelic speakers so that's a point of commonality they're almost all Protestant because that's the rules of the plantation but even the Scots speakers so the speakers of, of English as spoken in Scotland are viewed differently from the English and one thing that you see at the start of the rebellion is the Scots are told by the rebels in Ulster that they won't be touched it's only the English they're after so that doesn't last but that's that's certainly a thing at the start of the rebellion where the Scots kind of try to stand aloof and they're they're told at the start that they're not going to be touched by the rebels that doesn't quite help out though well if we look to the actual rebellion itself and the attempts to take dublin castle and the armory how does that come about yeah you know it's it's a fascinating story actually i've always thought someone should make a movie about this because there's as i said there's this situation of kind of crisis in the three kingdoms and a small group of of landowners there's they're mostly from ulster but there's one uh borio moore who's from kind of the midlands led by Phelim O'Neill, who was a landowner up in, in Tyrone. And Phelim O'Neill was one of these guys who had actually benefited from the plantation because he'd sided against, or his family had sided against their kinsman, Hugh O'Neill, in the, the Nine Years' War. But, you know, they were under threat from this thing of questioning their titles. Phelim O'Neill himself was, was deeply in debt. But basically, this thing of using the crisis with the English Parliament to, to mount a coup d'etat. So you're going to seize Dublin Castle, centre of the administration, and seize the armoury there. There's only about 2,000 English troops in Ireland, so... Once you seize the armory and distribute weapons to your followers, you're in a pretty good position to take over the whole country. Phelim O'Neill is going to take over the forts in Ulster and Charlemont and elsewhere. But he sends three men to Dublin, Rory O'Moore, uh, Conor Maguire and Hugh McMahon. They come into Dublin under the cover of people coming down from the hills and from the countryside on market day. So, you know, Dublin's pretty small at the time. It's kind of a little enclave along the river. Most of it's on the south side of the river, only a little bit kind of Smithfield area today on the north side. And they infiltrate in under these these traders and farmers who've come in for market day with weapons kind of hidden on their persons. And the idea is they're going to rush Dublin Castle. But some of them don't turn up in time and it gets postponed for a day. And we're now on October 23rd, 1641, which is, you know, probably one of the most decisive days in Irish history or significant days. It gets postponed. And while it's postponed, Conor Maguire and Hugh McMahon retire to a pub, a, a tavern. And they get talking to an acquaintance of theirs called Owen O'Connolly. And like them, it's a, he's, he's a Gael, he's an Irish speaker, but he's a Protestant convert. He's actually a servant to an English parliamentarian called John Cloudworthy. And basically, Hugh McMahon spills the beans to Owen O'Connolly as they're drinking. But O'Connolly goes straight off and he tells the authorities. And uh, McMahon gets arrested. And while he's in custody, McMahon tells the authorities that there's going to be an apocalyptic rising the following day he said we're going to seize all the towns in ireland and all the ports and we're going to massacre all protestants unless you release me and i tell them to call it off now this is actually kind of a bluff by by mcmahon but the authorities believe him and there's a great scene described by richard bellings who was kind of a historian of the rebellion catholic historian and participant and the following day you know the rumors get get out in dublin and it's market day so the city is full of strangers and the gentlemen are all going around wearing their swords which they would have done anyway but one gentleman adjusts his sword in the street and someone thinks it's it, it's the signal for rebellion and everybody draws their swords, you know, so you've got this kind of paranoia 
but this goes on for about a day in Dublin. Then the authorities banish all strangers from the city uh, within one hour on pain of death. Uh, and the insurgents, there's only about 80 of them kind of leave the city. But meanwhile, in, in the north, Phelan O'Neill has successfully done his part. He took kind of by trickery Charlemagne Castle. And this shows you kind of how well actually Phelan O'Neill is integrated into the upper classes and how this is at the start kind of not intended to be a revolution. Phelan O'Neill knocks, walks up to the gate of Charlemagne Castle, knocks on the door and asks to be invited in for dinner. When they let him in, he takes over the castle. Him and his followers do this in several other places as well. But the attempted seizure of Dublin Castle, that's a fiasco. But Phelan O'Neill has already risen and he gets to Newry after a day or two and he issues a proclamation saying he's calling on all Catholics to rise up in the king's name. So it goes back to what you were saying before, Carl. He says it's not intended to be against the Protestants and so on, but he says we're rising up before the king against the incursions into the king's authority of the English parliament. And he said, we want all these grievances of Catholics sorted out and reversed, all this discrimination, and we want a new Irish parliament called. And, and it just shows the limited kind of the limited aims of the initial rebellion. But, you know, it, it's possibly the most dangerous thing to have a coup that doesn't work, which half goes off, because then what have you got? You've got a civil war. Well, that's the thing, John. How do the Irish government react to the news of Phelan O'Neill rising in Ulster? Yeah, well, the thing, here's the thing. What do they know? They know that there's been some kind of attempted coup in Dublin, and they know that there's been a, a rising in the north. And remember, the North is you know where the Nine Years' War came from, and they have been told by Hugh McMahon that there's a general plan to massacre all Protestants. So what happens basically is they react accordingly. So they sent out a number of commanders, and you're talking about people who were settlers themselves, landowners, you know, who, who command what troops there are, and also you know armed levies, which would also be again all Protestant, under Charles Coote, which is around Dublin, and under William St. Ledger in Munster. And they go out and they basically kill all around them. And to give you an idea of this, call of how savage this is, Charles Coote mounts a sortie up to Santry, which is, you know, it's today a suburb of Dublin, but in those days it's a village. It's probably about, about 10k north of Dublin, would you say? Yeah, roughly, roughly. Yeah, so, you know, it's a day's march in those days. What he finds is there's all these uh, men sleeping out in the fields in Santry. And he assumes that these are this is the rebel army that's come to take Dublin. And he slaughters them and he cuts off their heads and brings them back to Dublin and they're mounted on pikes, you know, outside the city. What they'd actually been is, uh, you know, seasonal laborers who'd been sleeping in the fields because they'd been working there. So this kind of kind of indiscriminate slaughter that Coot does and also uh, Warham St. Ledger also does down in Munster. This provokes a lot of people into rebellion around the country. So, you know, you've got the snowball effect. So first of all, you've got the rebellion in the north, which is not bloody at all. Then you've got this government reaction. And then the much more bloody phase of the rebellion breaks out around the country. Well, that's the thing. If It feels like there's a lot of people who would have liked to stay aloof from the rebellion, like Catholic gentry, for example, feel they're almost compelled to get involved. Because as far as the Irish government are concerned, they're guilty anyway because of their religious beliefs. That's right. That's right. And, that, and, and this is kind of exacerbated by the statement that the government put out, which was, that this was a, a plot of evil-affected Irish papists, which is interpreted by the, the Catholics at large, that this is, you know, that they blame all Catholics for the, for the rising. So you get quite a complicated picture, though, because it's in the interests of the Catholic gentry to say that they were provoked into it. There's quite a lot of evidence that people who'd lost land over the previous 50 years were, were quite keen on the rebellion. And there seems to be a lot of evidence that they sent out younger sons to join the rebellion, like Phelan O'Neill, 
by this point had marched to Drogheda and he set up a camp there and he called in people in the pale to, to join him. And they say it's only because of this terrible provocation from the government that they do it. Down in Munster, the lords there, like uh, Mount Garrett, who was one of the Butler family around Kilkenny, according to his apologists, like he tries to keep order and he shoots looters himself in Kilkenny City who were attacking Protestants. But then he has to join it because the government is going to blame all Catholics. The same with Dunham McCarthy down in Cork, who's one of the largest Catholic landowners there. Viscount Muskery, he eventually becomes. And their version is they just wanted to maintain order in the king's peace, but they couldn't because they were distrusted by the government. Uh, it's uh, probably probably uh, only half true at best, though, because I think there is a number of things like attacks, popular attacks on kind of Protestant settlers started all over the country. They got especially bad in, in Ulster. It was a case where the Catholic gentry felt that they couldn't control this movement, so that they would have to lead it, I think. And as you mentioned there, John, uh, with the attacks on Protestants, that's probably the issue that's remembered the most about 1641 rebellion. And you can still see some orange lodges to this day will have under banners images of the Protestant civilians being massacred and ported down and places like that. It's still very, very strong in the folk memory of Irish Protestants. Oh, yeah. And I mean, and until quite recently, 1641 is the Irish Protestant memory. You know, that what had happened was there'd been an attempt to massacre them all uh, and that God had intervened and and, uh, and saved them. Now, there's been a lot of research in this in recent kind of decades. And what you see is a much more kind of complicated picture. Like one thing that we mentioned already is that the Scots were apparently promised that they'd be spared. And a lot of the initial attacks on settlers around the country was attacks on property. So they were stealing their goods, taking their land, so on like this. According to Nicholas Canny, who's the great historian of this period, the actual massacres started after an initial encounter near Lisburn in Ulster, where the, which the Protestants won and they killed all the insurgents who they took prisoner. And Nicholas Canny states that the, the widespread killing of Protestants starts after this point. Uh, no, I, I don't know, because the, the, the depositions, there's so many of them, and, and it's so kind of complex, each case is different. But it appears to be that the initial attacks are like, you know, state taking property, uh, taking land, taking animals, and then that escalates into, into actual killings. Whether it's because of this kind of cycle of revenge, it's hard to say, but the cycle of revenge starts quite quickly. So one of the most notorious massacres is supported down, and this is after a rebel defeat. And one of these encounters between the, the Protestants kind of arm themselves and they try to defend themselves and they get the better of the insurgents and they act ruthlessly. You know, the, their government forces are also acting ruthlessly, as I mentioned. But in Port Adam, the insurgents stream back into the town after a defeat somewhere and they, they get around 100 Protestants on, onto the bridge in the town and they uh, shoot and, and pike them to death and then drown some of them in, in the river. There's lots of kind of really tragic stories. Like I mentioned, Phelan O'Neill, who's the ostensible head of the rebellion. Phelan O'Neill had actually brought in. Protestant settlers, English settlers in, in Tyrone and Kennard because they paid more rent. And these were all murdered by a local clan called the Ohiki clan, the ancestors of the surname Hahi today. But they killed all of Phelan O'Neill's English talents because, you know, they'd been driven off there themselves. So it just shows you the, the anarchy of, of the early months of the rebellion. There's all these local grudges kind of get played out. Yes, very much so. It must have been a terrifying time because... As you know, Ireland at that stage was a very rural place. There wasn't that many big towns. Because if you were an undertaker, as they were called, a, a settler, a planter in some part of Ulster or the Midlands, and you were attacked, it's a long way to go to find help, to find some army encampment or 
go to a large town. There's nowhere to go for assistance. Yeah, yeah. And what you see is kind of streams of refugees across the country. You know, they stream into the, the bigger towns like um, Belfast, only a small town, but Carrick Fergus up in Ulster, they head to Derry, they head to Dublin, Cork, Waterford. And sometimes these kind of refugee convoys are attacked on the way as well. So it's thought that about 4,000 Protestants were killed in the early months of the rebellion, civilians now, but that the true death toll might be about 12,000 because people are, are thrown out of their homes in the depths of winter and they have to traipse across country. They're getting attacked and, and beaten and stuff on the way. And then once they get to the towns, they either take ship to England or they're, you know, they're cramped into, you know, very insanitary towns inside these kind of cramped walls. So it's it's a horrifying picture for, for Protestants in Ireland in the early months of the rebellion. And just to add to the complications, the Irish government that are prosecuting this war are a royalist government. They're not aligned to parliamentarians in London, are they, John? No, and that's one of the weird things about it is because the rebels' rhetoric is that they're fighting for the king. But the king actually sends over an army to Ireland under his own authority, which is directed by the, the Lord's Justice in Dublin Castle, to put down the rebellion. And he does this with funds from the English Parliament. You know, they temporarily agree on this, at least. And the English Parliament also passes a thing called the Adventurers Act in 1642, where the army that's sent to Ireland will be paid for by confiscation of all the Catholic land in Ireland, which really raises the stakes. So initially, like for several months, you have basically the all of England, if you like, and also the Scottish Parliament sends an army to protect their people in, in Ulster. The Catholics are organized in kind of what Padraig Lenehan, for example, in his book calls seigneurial forces, which means a landowner gets his forces together and, and arms them as best he can. The rebellion would have been broken, probably had not civil war broken out in England itself. So in mid-1642, basically what happens is that um, the king and the parliament can't agree on who's in control of this army that they sent to ireland raised and sent to ireland and the parliament is afraid that if they don't have control of it it'll be brought back to deal with them after because they're also at odds with the king the king flees london goes to oxford and, and the parliament raises its own army and then civil war breaks out in england between the, the king and the parliament now it's not about ireland per se but ireland is the, the spark that that lights it off but in ireland the effect of this and this i can I can empathize with any listeners who feel this is getting very complicated, but basically the Catholics in Ireland are saved from defeat by the fact that civil war breaks out in England. The English forces in Ireland are then split between people who are loyal to the king and people who are loyal to the parliament and also loyal to the Scots. So there's four factions in Ireland by mid 1642. There is the Scots in Ulster. There is the English royalists based in Dublin. You have the English parliamentarians like the, the garrison and court changes sides, for example. And you've got the Irish Catholics. And in mid-1642, the Irish Catholics organised their own kind of government in Kilkenny, which is called the Catholic Confederation of Ireland. Now, this is the thing I wanted to move on to and I was going to bring up next. What was the Catholic Confederation and who were they? Uh, basically, this is kind of a, a Catholic provisional government, if you like. So the military thing goes very badly for the catholics at the start as i said because an army had been brought over from england and scotland and was beaten back and they were only organized in kind of local forces civil war breaking out in england gives them breathing space so what also happens is a lot of irish soldiers come back from spain and from france where they'd been serving catholic armies there they brought a lot of expertise the french and the spanish also sent a lot of arms and munitions to help them the Catholic clergy also kind of provided an organizing framework and they issued an oath of association also to Catholics. So they get together and they form essentially a government 
And it's kind of a parliamentarian government, weirdly enough, because it's governed by a Supreme Council, which is elected by a General Assembly. So, you know, weirdly, it's actually kind of a parliamentary government uh, based on Kilkenny. And their aim is to fight this war, to come to an agreement with the king, but not with the English parliament. And, and they have a series of, of demands. And essentially, it's toleration for Catholicism, removal of all discrimination against Catholics, and the autonomy of Ireland under the, under the king. So like the English parliament won't have any say, It'll, Ireland will be governed from Ireland. And these are essentially the things that they're fighting for. But they control probably about two thirds of Ireland. So they don't control Dublin or Cork or Northeast Ulster or, or Derry and North Ulster, but they basically have all the rest of Ireland. And they organize quite competent armies, as I said, under these Irish soldiers who came back from, mainly from the Spanish army, but some from French as well. And they're armed by the Spanish and the French as well, to, to a degree. By 1642, what you have, again, Richard Bellings, I mentioned before, calls an, an orderly war. So he, Richard Bellings called the rebellion this disease, you know, because what was happening from his point of view was the lower classes were doing whatever they wanted. It was anarchy. They were attacking people of property. The Catholic upper classes managed to bring this back under control with this government that they set up at Kilkenny. And there's another character that comes into the story that we should mention as well. Oliver Cromwell. What is his relationship to the events that are happening in Ireland at this time? Well, Cromwell, yeah, you know, this is, Cromwell is obviously associated with this period, but Cromwell is not important in Ireland at all until about 1649. So I'm going to have to fill in a bit here, but basically there's a really inconclusive war in Ireland from 1642 to 1649. So first of all, there's a ceasefire between the Catholics and the Royalists that are based in Dublin because the ostensible aim of the Catholics is to come to terms with the king, but they keep fighting against the parliamentarians based in Cork and the Scots based in, in Ulster. And it's very inconclusive. There's victories and defeats for both sides, but the Catholics come to an agreement with the Royalists, first of all, in 1646, but the clergy revolts, they won't have it. The papal nuncio, Renicini, who's sent over by the Pope, he won't have it because it doesn't have guarantees on Catholic toleration and it doesn't give them the churches and so on that were seized at the Reformation. So, there's a coup within the, the Confederation that the kind of ultra-Catholics take over, but then they lose several battles. They come back and they say, actually, we need to come to a deal with the, with the king after all. There's a second deal with the king in 1648, and this one sticks. And then the king offers them much better terms. But why does he do this? Because he's totally defeated in England itself. So he's the prisoner of the parliament by the time the second Ormond peace, as it's called, is negotiated. But the upshot is by 1649, so this is eight years after the rebellion and eight years of war you have a regroupment in ireland the king is the prisoner of the parliament in england but a lot of royalists commanders and soldiers are shipped to ireland they join with the catholic confederation and the idea they proclaim charles the first of all charles the first as the continuing legitimate king of the three kingdoms and secondly his after he's executed in early 1649 uh, his son charles ii uh, as the legitimate king of the three kingdoms again by this time in england you have you know, the parliamentarians have won really a, a military faction, I would say, under Oliver Cromwell. Oliver Cromwell becomes prominent as a commander of the new model army, the Parliament's army in the Civil War. And while he's not that radical politically, he, he's very forthright, very militant about winning the war, very militant also in the field of religion. But from the Parliament's and from Cromwell's perspective, you have a royalist stronghold in Ireland and you have to come over and you have to destroy it if your revolution is going to stick, if your regime is going to stick. You've executed the king now. There's no way back. What's effectively an English republic, the English Commonwealth, 
sends over Cromwell as the commander of their forces in 1649 to destroy the Catholic and, and Royalist uh, stronghold in Ireland. And how long does the Royalist army last in Ireland after Cromwell arrives? Well, the Royalist army, properly said, lasts probably about six months. Because what happens is Cromwell comes over just before Cromwell came over. Actually, Dublin, with this point, was held by parliamentarian forces. The Duke of Ormond, it was the Royalist commander. Ormond plays a part, a, a strange part in all these wars. You know, he's a Royalist throughout. Um, his family is all Irish, the Butler family, but he, he himself is a Protestant. So he kind of has a foot in both camps. But anyway, Ormond lost battle at Rathmines just outside Dublin in 1649, just before Cromwell arrived. Um, and they never stopped losing after that. So Cromwell goes up and first of all, he takes Drogheda and massacres the garrison there, and possibly some of the townsmen as well. Then he goes, marches down to Wexford, which is, you know, another very important port. Uh, and he, he smashes that garrison as well and, and massacres all the garrison there too. And, and certainly a lot of townspeople there too. And the Catholic and Royalist forces, they hold it in Waterford, which is besieged, but they mainly re retreat behind the line of the Shannon. And at this point, a lot of the Royalists just give up. And Ormond, who is the, the real Royalist leader, is kind of deposed. And it goes back to being a Catholic thing, really, rather than a, a Royalist thing. Charles II also basically reneges on his deal with the Irish Catholics and signs a, another deal with the Scottish. You know, it's, 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 a very, it's a very factionalized, complicated war. But effectively, then the war goes on for three more years then in this long kind of series of counterinsurgency, guerrilla warfare, sieges as Cromwell and his forces. Cromwell goes back to England in 1650 to deal with the Scots, but his forces under Henry Ireton and Charles Fleetwood subsequently, uh, you know, have this basically three-year campaign of, of reducing Catholic resistance. But the loss of life is enormous because the Cromwellians burned all the, the crops and so on that would fed the local population. They also brought with them plague and, you know, and they also acted fairly ruthlessly as well, but they have a massive mortality basically from famine and plague during the Cromwellian campaign. And just to finish up, John, how has the 1641 rebellion been remembered in Irish historiography in the subsequent centuries? You know, we could have a whole other show about this and would not be boring at all because one historian once wrote that all of Irish history is, is a footnote to 1641. So what comes out of 1641 effectively is Catholics lose all their land after the Cromwellian conquest, with, with the very few exceptions. Some of it's restored afterwards um, under the Restoration, but they lose, you know, they lose another war then in the 1690s. And effectively what this means is the Catholic upper classes are totally wiped out. A lot of them flee to the continent. Some of them just go down in class. But you have what's what we now know as the Protestant descendancy, really is the son in a, in a strange way of the 1641 rebellion. Secondly, an Irish Protestant narrative is born where their community is forever under siege, forever have to be watchful and vigilant because the Catholics turned on them for no reason in 1641 is the version that they have. And Sir John Temple, for example, popularizes a version where 200,000 Protestants were killed in, in the rebellion. Now, there wasn't actually that many Protestants in Ireland at the time. And the number we now know is, is you know, between four and 12,000 that were killed. But it's, it has this searing kind of effect on the Irish Protestant memory. And throughout the 18th century, October the 23rd, which is the anniversary of the rebellion, is commemorated religiously. And I mean that both literally and figuratively, because in many Protestant churches, there are hours long sermons where the preacher will talk about the deliverance of the community in 1641. But the other lesson is that you have to be forever watchful against these Catholics. And the Catholics were directed by the Pope. You know, the Pope is the Antichrist and so on. And they will forever be plotting to exterminate the Protestants of Ireland. So you must forever be watchful of them.
you know, so it has a massive impact in, in that regard. And it's one reason. Another reason is Catholic continued kind of attachment to the Stuart Kings and the Jacobites in the 18th century. But 1641 and the memory of it is also a reason why the penal laws are kept on the books for so long, the discrimination against Catholics. Like they only start to be repealed in the 1790s. So you've 200 odd years really of straightforward religious animosity and, and, and at times religious warfare in Ireland. And a lot of it is the son of, of 1641. Well, that's the thing, 1641 isn't like other uprisings that we remember in Irish history, like 1798. And you have all the issues to do with the massacres of Protestants. So it's not something that can go down in the pantheon of great Irish rebellions the way that the others can. Yeah, yeah. You know, the Irish Catholic memory of it is interesting. So like the Irish Catholic memory has been to on one hand, to deny that these massacres took place. So there's a lot of Catholic writing in the 17th and 18th century saying that there weren't any massacres of Protestants or that they were greatly exaggerated. There's some justification for that, but there were massacres. The other thing is to take aspects of, of the subsequent events and kind of celebrate them. Like Owen Rowe O'Neill, who was one of these Irish soldiers in Spanish service who comes back, and he's one of the ones who, who held up, you know, who, who rejected the first deal with the Royalists and so on. He becomes a, you know, Catholic let's say, a proto-nationalist kind of hero. And he's celebrated even by the 19th century patriots, you know, the young Irelanders and so on. He actually died of disease, you know, before he could face Cromwell in 1649. But the period as a whole is, is so complex and, and so riven with kind of faction and, and so distasteful that it didn't really penetrate into the, the Catholic and later nationalist narrative, except for aspects of it, like I said, Cromwell as this kind of demon figure at the end of it did. But the actual rebellion and the Confederation of Kilkenny and so on plays a surprisingly little role in, in kind of popular consciousness in, in Irish history. What's well, amazing how few people have heard about the Catholic Confederation. The first time I remember hearing about it was in college, but if I'd heard about it in secondary school, I'd forgotten about it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's it's a complicated period and it's difficult to teach is, is the other thing. So someone once wrote that the period was shrouded in detail. So it's too much was known about it rather than too little. Another, more more recently, like scholars have been coming back to it. And Michal Osokru, who you interviewed before, Kahle, wrote quite convincingly that the Confederate regime was the only real independent Irish government, you know, before 1922, which is an interesting kind of thesis. Yes, it's definitely a very interesting period for anyone who's listening to the show and would like to read up more on it and it definitely challenges a lot of the assumptions that you have about Irish history it complicates them for sure doesn't it yes very much so well I think we'll leave it there John thanks very much that's John Dorney from the Irish Story website if you'd like to listen to any previous episodes of our show go to our website irishhistoryshow.ie you can follow us on twitter at irishhistorypod or follow us on facebook facebook.com forward slash the irish history show if you get a chance please rate and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and if you could please share the episodes on your social media and let people know it really helps us and if you have any opinions on the show please let us know please contact us on twitter or whatever and uh, tell us what you think so until next time my name is Cahill Brennan and on behalf of myself my co-presenter John Dorney thank you very much for listening